It is he whom we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil and struggle with all the energy that he powerfully inspires within me. This is the word of the Lord. Warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom. Warning and teaching. Greek word for warning is nuthetiko. Nuthetiko? No, no C in there. Nuthetio. You hear the word nous in there, which means mind? Mind, it means literally to put something in people's mind, to, to admonish, to warn, advise. Warning is, I think, almost a lost art. I, I feel like it's been decades since warning was normal in the church. It has to do with an awareness of common pitfalls that happen to people often, and it has to do with advising people in advance so that they can avoid those pitfalls. You could be offended by a warning. Who do you think you're talking to? I'm not gonna fall. Warning assumes that nobody's a special case. Warnings assume that every one of us is capable of great evil. Warnings assume that every one of us is on a path where repentance is needed. And warnings, I think, come more naturally from a worldview that values God more than it values people. This has been deeply in my gut lately. I don't know why, but I can't seem to... I keep coming back to this, this feeling of the fear of the Lord and this feeling of how in, 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 in our modern worldview... Humans are ultimate. Humans have taken the place of ultimate importance. And so when we try to even then make sense to talk about the things of God, we almost speak into or, or we speak to try to sort of make sense to a, a humanistic perspective. And so what ends up happening as we talk about the, the life in Christ and the lifestyle we're called to and, and to make sense of it to people. Don't you want to make sense of the, of the gospel lifestyle to people? And so as we're trying to make sense of it to people, it seems like one of the things that's hard to translate is a value of taking God as the most important person in the world. It's hard to translate that. Because our natural human tendency is... Well, sin is wrong because it hurts the sinner and it hurts the people sinned against. And as true as that is, that's humanism and it's very unbiblical. The biblical perspective is that in every act of sin, the primary person who is being sinned against is God. David said that when he slept with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. In Psalm 51, he says, against you. And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And then he cries out, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. He's not really, it's exaggeration, it really is. He's not denying that he's defiled himself. He's not denying that he's caused great harm to people. But he's dominated by a totally different value system that is the, that is the assumption in which his prayers make sense, and his choices make sense, and his message makes sense. 
And in that value system, a value system that, that views God as most important, and a value system that recognizes every single person who lives is born, lives, dies, and then stands before Christ to offer an account of their lives. In that kind of, that kind of mindset, where, the, the, where the, the, the importance of God takes center stage, warning makes perfect sense then, doesn't it? Yes. If, if I see you choosing a lifestyle that's just going to hurt you and some others briefly, and then when you're dead, you're dead, it's like, why would I bother? Because if I warn you, I take risk into my hands. You rebuke a wise person, they'll be wiser still. But if you rebuke a fool, you bring trouble into your life. Because they won't respond well. And most of us, I don't know if you know this, still have a lot of foolishness bound up in our hearts. So we're not as easy to deal with as we imagine we are. And so to warn people is to embrace a life that will have suffering in it. And Paul's like, I'm warning and teaching everyone Constantly warning, and in other places, he says with tears, like Ephesians 20. I warned you with tears. In 1 Corinthians, I think it is, where he's talking about a, life, a list of lifestyles that do not please the Lord and will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Amen. I warn you with tears, those who do such things, they'll miss out on the kingdom. Amen. These warnings... They're, they're not just coming like, oh, yeah, yeah, warning people. No, there's a, whole, there's a whole value system and worldview in which warning makes perfect sense. And I don't think warning makes much sense in our worldview. We're too cynical. We're cynical about the value of human life. We're cynical mostly about God. We're cynical about whether or not we can even know truth. It's like, just go after your own happiness and leave other people alone. That's a version of the faith our culture would respect. If your faith calls you to do certain things and not do certain things, that's fine. You'll go do that in a corner. Cool. Cool beans. But if you tell me something, then not cool beans. Don't try and tell me about your Jesus. And then we can almost take that mindset on ourselves. We can take on the mindset of, look, it's just about personal fulfillment. If there's one thing I know about Americans is our deepest abiding commitment is to ourselves, to be happy. That needs to be warned against. That is in competition. I remember uh, Tony Campolo coming to my seminary and saying, hey preachers, um, you realize that our culture is materialistic, meaning we think our life consists in the abundance of our goods, the coolness of our clothes, the house, the car, our achievements in a con you know that, right? And he was saying, preachers, listen, if you aren't speaking into the crisis of the other gods that are dominating our culture, the gods that are dominating the people in your pews, if you aren't preaching into the issues really happening, if you aren't warning your people of the end result of this lifestyle, like how are you even helping? Warnings take the value of people seriously enough to risk offending them. Do I love you enough for you to hate me and me be okay with that? If so, I might warn you. But if I love me more than you, then I will not warn you because of the potential for damaging our relationship. 
It takes some courage. It takes some love to engage in warning. It takes grace to warn effectively. It takes kindness. It takes mercy. It takes gentleness to warn well. But if you're cynical or loveless, you won't warn anybody. I mean, why bother about others if it's all about our personal happiness and if really Christianity is just here to give people hope in the face of death? But if it's true, if Christianity is true, if heaven's real, if hell's real, if forgiveness is available, if atonement is available, if there's a coming judgment that is going to happen, if Satan's real, if demons are real, if angels are real, if redemption is real, if the cross is real, if the spirit realm is real and the great battle that the Bible says is going on around us is all real, if it's all real and you're not warning people, we either don't take God seriously, sin seriously, or the value of people seriously, or all three. Amen. I guess what I'm trying to say here is there's something wrong with our worldview because warning doesn't make intuitive sense to us. Second word, teaching. Didasco, to instruct, to teach, to hold discourse with others in order to inform and train. Um, the teaching Paul's talking about is not kind of a Western classroom model of teaching where you sit in rows, you hear a lecture, you memorize the information, and then you regurg the, regurg regurg regurgitate the information on the test. That's not the kind of teaching Paul's talking about. It's more like an apprenticeship. An apprenticeship is when you find someone who has a skill you want to, to learn, and you sign up to be with, to work closely with the master where you say, Jesus, teach me how to live like you're living, and you sign up to work closely every day with the master, alongside the master, at the craft you wish to learn. And, by, and you learn by watching, you learn by doing, and you learn by hearing what he is saying about what he is doing and hearing what he is saying about what you are doing. Apprenticeship is based on acquiring skills not passing tests. Western education is pretty much almost entirely the wrong model. So when you even hear the word teaching, you go, oh, really? Okay, teaching, yeah, let's get to work. You know, memorizing information, reading more books. Humans have this thing in our brains where after you attend a lecture on being generous, you get a, like a dopamine hit and then you go, I'm a generous person because I agreed with a talk about generosity. And then you can walk past someone in need more comfortably without giving them anything because you've already done your God tax for the day. We think we are living that which we approve of. And so it's like, okay, so I'm going to Facebook post my view and that's my action in the world. So the, the teaching that we're engaged in, it's acquiring the skills. As I was thinking about this this morning, I envisioned a blacksmith and a glass blower and a furniture maker. And if you wanted to learn those things, they, like they may, as they're teaching, they may have a couple of references to great masters of the past. They might give you a little clue here and there of the history of the craft. But honestly, you don't even need to know that to get good. What matters is how much time you're spending in the doing. The real reason that you picked that master is not because they had that information, but because you saw the work they were doing. 
The teaching is, in other words, entirely focused on lifestyle. Wisdom. Teaching, warning and teaching in all wisdom. What is wisdom, you guys? Knowledge is useful, but wisdom is knowing what, how to apply the knowledge, what to do with the knowledge. And so he's warning, Paul's like, we warn you and we teach you with all wisdom. Wisdom is always directly related to lifestyle. Wisdom is always directly related to application, to how you live, living in such a way that pleases the Lord. And his focus, warning and teaching everyone to present everyone complete or mature in Christ, it shows you like his, his focus like how many of you have encountered a, a, a vision of Christianity that is getting saved, making sure as many people get saved and get to heaven as possible? You ever encountered that? I one time had somebody criticize me and leave the church because I do not give what they called a gospel invitation every service to receive Christ. And I thought, actually I do if you're paying closer attention. And their, their frustration with me was, Tim, if somebody happens, if a trucker happens to have been tra traveling somewhere and they stop in on Sunday and they come to this church and, and you missed, and that was the only Sunday they ever went to a church and you missed out on your opportunity to lead them in a sinner's prayer, they go to hell and it's your fault. And I thought, that's a very interesting way of thinking about the gospel. Paul's thinking this. I want every single person not to pray a prayer to go to heaven when they die. I want every single person to live deeply in Jesus. So deeply that as I, as I, I, don't, just in, I don't just make sure they pray a prayer as though you can separate having Jesus as Savior from walking with him as Lord. You can't. Paul's goal, what he's working for, what he's striving for is is. He wants you walking so closely with the Christ who is now in you that your lifestyle is growing and changing and, and expressing. He's warning you and teaching you with all the wisdom, wisdom as a knowledge applied, to present everyone mature in Christ. There, and you go, mature in Christ? The word mature is, te is teleos, and it means perfect. And we go, no, well, then there's, there's no point. Might as well quit. Which is why the, the translators know that if they write the word perfect in here, nobody will take the verse seriously. So instead, they render it complete or mature. Because they don't want you to turn, turn your brain off and say, well, that's impossible, so why even try? But what's it saying? His goal is for you, for you to grow up in Christ in real life, to grow up in Christ He's, he's using all the tools at his disposal to get, to get you and I to grow up in Christ and live a lifestyle that actually reflects the image of God. That's normal. That's normal Christianity. What do you mean present everyone mature in Christ? Present. Who are you presenting everyone to, Paul? Again, he's dominated by a God-saturated, God-centered universe. Present them where? Present them before God. In Christ, mature. We say nobody's perfect, and that's true. We all stumble at many points, but Paul said, uh, not that I have arrived at all this or have already been made perfect, but this one thing I do, 
forgetting what's behind and straining toward what's ahead, I press on toward the goal, toward the high calling that's mine in Christ. And what is it? I want to know him. And the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. Nobody's perfect doesn't cause Paul to say, well, then we'll just aim small, aim at getting people saved. We want everyone to be presented in such a way that what's the life of Christ in them is recognizable to God, that they've actually been transformed by Christ in them. I think there's a Christianity that's obsessed with getting eternal life, and Paul's obsessed with getting people into an eternal lifestyle. I think there's a Christianity that's obsessed with getting saved so that I, so that I, me, myself, I, I, me, I, avoid pain and get as much pleasure as possible. It's a me-centered Christianity. It's a it, me. It's what, what does God do for me? And then in the Christian lifestyle, we follow God to the extent that that value system gets tickled and pleasured and whatever else. We like it. So I only want to hear what I like to hear, and I only want to do what I like to do. And Paul's just opposite of that. He's worried about whether the image of God is formed in you. He knows that the, pl- the place it's formed in you most is when you learn to lay your life down like Jesus did. He, ne- he knows that the way that s- seems right to a man leads to death, and the natural human way is called living by the flesh, and it leads to destruction. And more importantly than anything else, it brings about the anger of God. And it will bring about the eternal judgment of God. So to try to like make sense of someone who is, who is gripped with an apocalyptic vision of the seriousness of the state of things. It's listening to someone who's speaking a foreign language. When our Christianity is so rooted in actually making us, we, we get to stay selfish, pretend we're not, and go after happiness, but using God now. And Paul's speaking into this, and he's like, no, 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 it's about the image formed in you. If you really believe this, I'm repeating myself now, but if you really believe this God of the book, if you really see this, it's an upside down, it's a, fl- it's a different, it's a flipped gospel. It's a flipped God. It's, it's using the same Bible verses as the American gospel, but it doesn't mean the same thing. Eternal life is something different. Forgiveness of sins lands differently. The word grace lands differently. Living by the Spirit cuts deeper lands differently. Praying without ceasing lands differently. It's presenting people mature in Christ. In Christ. It has to do with union with Jesus. It has to do with a lifestyle that's conducive to allowing the life of Christ that is in you to flow out. There's all kinds of lifestyles that if you live them, they will render the Christ in you powerless. And so that's where warning comes in. That's where teaching comes in. That's where training comes in. And that's the reason that wisdom is focused in on how are you living? How are you relating daily to God? How are you relating daily to your job? How are you relating to money? How are you relating to stuff? How are you relating to fame? How are you relating to the story you're telling yourself? How are you relating to your sin and your past? How are you relating to your peers? How are you relating to what your community says about you? Because all kinds of ways of of engaging those things will choke out the life of Christ that is in you. And Paul wants to see you rise up and have that life in you express itself in fruitful, like an actual image on the earth that looks like, feels like, smells like Jesus. There's a guest in the house. 
how do you behave when there's a guest in the house? I think my, the Millers are slightly introverted. So if there's too much on the schedule, we, we kind of go turtle shell and uh, we're like, whew, how about we don't interact with other people outside the household for a, a week to recover? And some of you are the opposite. You're like, you have a party on Tuesday night and then you have a Bible study on Wednesday night and all day you're with people at work and you're talking on the phone and in between. And then in your downtime, you're like, who can I call? Extrovert. So for me, when I think about having a guest in the house, I don't know if you know, you've experienced this too, but when there's a guest in the house, you do things differently. I think my grandma put my mom into a lifelong state of stress by shouting at everyone because guests are about to arrive. The, the, wide eye, the whites of the eyes were large and they were like, you're walking? You should run. And like, then the guests finally leave and they open a closet and like, like a pile comes rolling out. And so that seems to have been internalized by mom to where I think she gets pretty stressed out by guests being over. She's a wonderful, gracious host. You can't tell on the surface, but underneath the surface, there's a whole lot of stress because guests are over and you can't relax. And I think some of us almost kind of have this vision of Christ has now moved in to my house and it's like, look, Jesus, I'll give you, no, I'll give you Sundays and Wednesdays and I'll give you morning devotions and whatnot, but this time is me time. This other time is me time. I've, I gave you your time. You go back in the study or whatever. Maybe have a guest room or something because you make me feel uncomfortable and I want to take my shoes off and I, wanna let, I don't, I don't want to wash the dishes. I don't feel like worrying over whether or not there's clothes on the bathroom floor. Depending how we view the Lord, the idea of, the, of really living deeply in Christ almost creates stress. It's like, can we compartmentalize a little here, Lord? I think the goal is not to get, keep the house so clean that the guest is always seeing us at our best. I think the goal is to become so at home with him that the small stuff that neither of you should care about doesn't matter, but the big stuff that matters a lot really does matter. And I think it should feel, you know how you feel when family's home? It's different than when there's a guest in the house. The goal is to get so close to Jesus that it doesn't feel like there's a guest in the house at all. But he becomes home. And yeah, I mean, and and yeah, he he has different opinions, right? The place will get remodeled. His interior decoration sense is very different from yours and mine. And eventually you learn to like what he likes. And you learn to take your shoes off before you walk over the, the carpet, the white carpet. I don't know, the rest of the world, when, when they watch Americans walk into a house with their shoes on, it feels like someone walked across your pancake. You're like, how dare you? That, that's, my, that's my floor. Do you know where that's been? You're going to bring that in the house? I feel like that's pro- there's, there's, there's stuff like that with Christ. There's stuff that we just like do, that we're comfortable with, and he's like, oh, no, that's not okay. And there's stuff that he does that we're like, really though? Ketchup on eggs? Here's the point I'm trying to make is Paul's trying to present everyone mature in Christ. He's trying to present everyone perfect in Christ, not just present everyone perfect by some sort of rules or something like that. It's relational stuff he's worried about, but it's very significant how you live to let this indwelling Christ be expressed. 
there's certain lifestyles that are so serious. Paul's like, listen, you need to know straight up, that is not even compatible with your life in Christ. You, like, you can't, you can't live that way. You used to, but you can no longer. Toil and struggle. He uses both of these words. He uses toil, kopiao, strong exertions, working hard, struggling, and he uses agonizomai. Do you hear a word in there? Agonizomai. It's the same word in Greek that they used of athletes who are contending for a prize against each other, striving earnestly. It means to try very hard. This is Paul's description of himself. This is... This is what he's doing in his efforts to see you brought to fullness in Jesus. They say the definition of being in a codependent enabling relationship is when you are working harder on someone else's problems than they are. Paul's working quite a bit harder on our problems than we are if we're the Colossian Christians. He's never met the Colossians, by the way. If you keep reading in the context of Colossians 2, he starts, that, he starts out chapter 2 by continuing this thought, because obviously, you know, the chapter divisions are added later. He's like, I want all of you to know how stinking hard I'm working for you and for the others, people I've never even met. He'd work well in New York City. Did you know different cities have different cultures? Yes. And did you know that different cultures are, have, have their strengths and weaknesses? New York's like, here we go. We don't need sleep. We'll sleep when we're dead. Get out of my way. It's New York City. Honk, joker, out the way, fool. It's my cab. Working hard, baby. Getting it done. And there's still a deep sense of, like, belonging. We're from New York, baby. We're survivors. You go to L.A. and it's, like, totally different. I heard uh, Casey Neistat, his wife said, um, they just moved from New York to L.A. She described L.A. as being way more laid back than New York, but way more selfish and disconnected. Isn't that interesting? She's like... In New York, they're mean to your face, but there's a sense of connection. And in L.A., everyone's chill and everyone's cool, but everyone's really self-centered and disconnected. No one really cares about anyone else. I wonder what our culture is. What's your culture when it relates to the issue of hard work? Because we all have one. And Paul's like, he is focused. He is at the corner of hustle and haste. He is at the corner of struggle and strive. And you go, well, that doesn't sound like Jesus. That doesn't sound like grace. And as soon as you say that doesn't sound like grace, his next words are, I'm struggling with all the energy he powerfully provides. His power, his energy, his spirit, his resurrection power, his zeal, God's own energy for his purposes, for his love, for his gospel, for his people, for his glory, God's own zeal. Remember this, where it says of Jesus, zeal for your house will consume me, and that was referenced when he's flipping over the tables of the money changers and letting the animals go? We know that zeal without knowledge is bad, but maybe we have forgotten that zeal itself, when it's partnered with wisdom and grace and kindness, is exceedingly good. It is bad to lose your zeal. Zeal, that's a weird word, right? You know what I mean? Like maybe the way we talk about zeal, hunger. That's what we call it. Ambitious. And some people would even say, oh, well, it's a lack of contentment. Well, it is. It's a lack of contentment with the current state of things. But it's not incompatible with a contentment in Christ. And so Paul's like, you go, oh, Paul, 
Stop, stop straining and striving. We're under grace. And he's like, the grace is what makes me work so hard. Let me flip you over to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Lots of people receive God's grace in vain. Do you know what I mean by that? God's wasting his blessings on us some of the time. Someone who's received God's voice didn't obey it. Someone who's received God's peace didn't keep it. Someone who's received God's blessings didn't value them. Someone who's received an offer, be my son, be my child, get in on this. They said, nah, I got other things I want to do. Someone who's had people praying for him and being kind to him and, and all, these, all these opportunities to find Jesus and grow up and bear great fruit and absolutely nail it. And they said, nah, I'm going to do something else instead. Receiving the grace of God in vain. You want to be miracle grow Christians, right? You want to be the kind of Christians who have such responsive hearts, such hungry hearts, such believing spirits, such surrendered will, such, such a tenacity in the pursuit of God that if he gives just a little grace to you, you do more with it than somebody who had so many more gifts than you. Have you ever seen somebody who was less gifted and less skilled, but their tenacity and their desire and their persistence caused them to have great success in an area? And over here, somebody who had so much skill, so much natural talent, so much smarts, so much potential, squandered it all. And Paul's like, listen, God's grace toward me was not in vain. In fact, I worked harder than any of the other apostles. Well, like, oh, that's pride, Paul, comparing yourself to other apostles. Is it pride? In this, in, well, in the second letter to Corinthians, we find out there's more going on where Paul's being criticized and the worldly apostles are being lifted up. So American Christians aren't the only ones who make heroes out of people who have unbiblical values. And let's follow them. That's what revival looks like. It's not just Americans. The Corinthians did it too. Paul was a better apostle than the people the Corinthians wanted to come do their revival services. And he was a little salty about it. But here he's like, listen, God's grace toward me was not invade. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. Oh, now we're just getting confusing. It was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. How does that work, Paul? He's straining, he's striving, he's laboring, and he's not taking credit for it. But it was the grace of God that is with me. I think we need a redefinition of grace, don't we? I think we kind of grew up thinking of grace as God overlooking our sins. But whatever it is, for whatever grace is in the New Testament, grace is more like the sap to the plant or the gas to the car or the fuel to the fire. Did you know Jesus lived by grace? And it had literally nothing to do with sin. He, had ne he never sinned. And yet it says he grew in favor, that's the word grace, with both God and man. Apart from the Father, I can do nothing. What does that mean? That means that everything he did was fueled by the grace of God that was with him. If grace is just God overlooking your sins, then it's weird that Paul's talking about grace being the thing that provides energy and power and love and fuel it's the actual working of God in and through you. And God pours that energy of himself on the humble. And he actively withholds it from the proud. 
He pours it on the little children and he hides himself from the wise and learned. Paul's like, listen, guys, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And because God's grace was poured out on me, I cooperated with grace. That's the thing. You can cooperate with grace or we can resist grace. And Paul's like, I am empowered by the Lord to bring you to the place where Christ in you is what you are cooperating with at such a deep level that you rise up and when you die and stand before him, the image he sees before him is recognizably him and you do well. He's living for that. There's a narrative, guys, that, that people are living from and they believe it's true. It's a shared narrative. It's a story our culture is telling each other through the airways and through the internet and the social medias and the conversation. And it's a story we're telling ourselves about what matters, what's right and wrong. And I just wish there was a way I could get us all to unplug. Because in that system, when you assume this worldview is correct, and then you just argue for the little sides of the thing that are still stuck in a deceived worldview. I asked God a question yesterday, and I said, is this true or is that true? And he goes, they're both wrong. And that's what I'm feeling in my spirit. The assumptions of the arguments that are driving us as Americans right now are wrong, both, both sides of arguments. I don't even know what I'm talking about at this point. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so grateful that you come home to live in this temple, my body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm so grateful. I ask, Father, that if there's areas of my life that I have compartmentalized and kept off limits because I fail to recognize that you're not an outsider, but you're home, that you would continue to do your work in me. I pray, God, for if there are lifestyles that we are living that we don't see that are in some way blocking the life of Christ in us, that you would reveal those and remove those so that your grace can flow. And God, I ask for you to restore a sense of zeal to us, that your grace would powerfully work, but then we wouldn't keep take it in vain, but we would cooperate with it and we would follow the impulses that come from the Spirit, not quench them. That we would let a little grace turn into a raging fire. 